Welcome to this message from Alpha and Omega Christian Fellowship. Our vision is to extend and establish the influence of the kingdom of God by equipping the saints for the work of ministry. We hope that you will be blessed and encouraged by what we have to share. Father, once again, we thank you for your presence here. We thank you, Lord, for your word to us, that your word is truth, and that your word contains the power of God unto salvation. And we want to thank you for that this morning. We want to thank you that as we dedicate a little one this morning, and as we talk about parenting and and all these things, we want to thank you that you are such a good, good father. Thank you that we can sing about it, and thank you that we can know about it so intimately as you draw your children near and deep into your heart. Father, would you bless the ministry of your word this morning? Would you bless our ears in hearing it? And would your grace enable that word to bear abundant fruit in our hearts and lives? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As I mentioned to you this morning, we, uh, I'm going to be talking to you a little bit about parenting. Some of you may think, thank goodness I don't need to worry about that. And some of you may be thinking, thank goodness my days of that are largely over. I now hold the honorary role of a parent and not the practical role. Um, But I want to talk to you about the heart of parenting this morning. You see, there is a universal law that I want to talk about. And that universal law can be seen all throughout nature in every living creature, whether it be plant or animal, and that is this, that everything is designed for reproduction. Everything is designed to reproduce. Where there is seed, there is potential. Potential for new life, potential for new growth. And here's the the key thing, is that everything is designed for reproduction after its own kind. Monkeys do not give birth to tigers. Olive trees do not bear pineapples. Everything recreates or reproduces after its own kind. It is a universal law. And like I said, this law is applicable to all nature, but this law is also applicable in the spirit. And I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, and we'll see, I want to show you how this principle works itself out, even in the spiritual realm. The book of Romans, chapter 5, from verse 17. If you don't have your Bibles, we'll put it up on the screen for you, so don't stress. It says this, For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and His gift of righteousness for all who receive it, who will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. So we see from what the Scripture is is articulating to us is the very principle I'm talking about, that through Adam, and other, other chapters or other verses of Scripture say, death reigned in the one, so because of sin, that spirit of sin, that death, everything that came from Adam had the nature of sin within it. And therefore we sin. Therefore, you see, we are not sinners because we've sinned or because we've done something wrong. That's putting the cart before the horse. We sin or we rebel against God because we were born with that nature within us. 
that nature keeps reproducing after its own kind. But what the scripture is also telling us is that because of Jesus, the power of sin has been done away with. The power of sin has been defeated. And those who have been what the Bible calls born again, in other words, born not into a sinful nature, but born again into the kingdom of God, can reproduce after their kind. Not death, but life. Jesus produces life. And wherever he reigns, and whichever heart receives him, receives life, everlasting life, eternal life. And that life continues to reproduce over its, uh, after its kind. Jesus' life still works today. And so the point that I'm making, when we come to this parenting thing, one of the inconvenient things that we don't like to often have to deal with is the fact that like produces like. We will always produce after our kind. My dad used to have this saying when I caught him out doing something wrong, Michael, do as I say, don't do as I do. And we wish our kids would take that advice, right? We wish our kids would do what we told them to tell them to do instead of modeling after us. But the fact of the matter is our kids will always emulate us. Our children will always take after their parents. They become a reflection of who we are. They, have, they, they will take on our traits. If we are generally lazy people who like to laze about and lounge around and don't like to get a lot of things done, guess what our children are going to be like? They're going to learn the same trait. If we're industrious, I take my hat. There are some people I really look up to and admire just because they are industrious in everything. You look at their homes, everything's in its place, everything's always sorted out. They're always busy doing something. It's like they have an endless reservoir of energy. I don't know where they get it from. If there's a fountain that they drink from somewhere, I certainly don't have access to it. But guess what their children are like, generally? They have that same drive, that same passion, that same discipline. Like a cold, kids catch what you've got. And kids cannot catch or become what you do not, what you are not. Later on in life, obviously things change, and as we become independent, we, we can make decisions for ourselves and go the way we want to go. But the point is that children, especially when they are young, and obviously I have to speak spe most specifically to Mark and Nicola this morning, it's their, it's their child's dedication. That little girl's going to be just like you one day, Mark. For better or for worse, brother. You see, folks, parenting is the greatest form of discipleship there is. That's why God created the family unit. That's why God instituted marriage that a man and a woman would leave their father and mother, be married to one another, and in the context of that mutual love would have an environment that is stable, to grow up in, to be nurtured in, where they can experience unconditional love, they can experience tenderness, they can experience discipline. And that parenting sphere, that, that marriage sphere, is the greatest and most fertile and wonderful environment for a child to grow up in. It's very interesting, if you read the last few verses of the Old Testament, in the book of, of Malachi, it says that in the last days... God will turn the hearts of the fathers to the sons and the hearts of the sons to the fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. What does that mean and what does that curse look like? Well, I, I ask you to look at any community where you see fatherlessness is rife and you'll get a good idea of what the curse looks like. You'll find high crime rate. 
You'll find poverty is generally much higher in those areas. You'll find gangsterism is prevalent. Why? Because you've got young men and even young women these days looking for some kind of belonging, looking for a place, looking for identity because they are outside of that environment that God originally intended for them to be in. The marriage or the, the home environment, the family setting, is a sacred and a very beautiful thing. And it is the place where discipleship begins. Discipleship is not something that begins when you start taking your children to church. Discipleship begins at home. What does it mean to disciple someone? It means to train them up in the ways of another. When Jesus said, you will be my disciples, what does that mean? Well, he articulated it this way. You will deny your, yourself. In other words, you will deny what you want to do and the way you want to go. You will take up your cross. In other words, be prepared to face whatever may come, even if that be death, and follow me. Do things my way. That's what discipleship is. And he goes on to say that that is the only way that leads to life. That whoever tries to save his life will ultimately lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake will gain his soul, will save it, and will have everlasting life. The point I'm making is that parenting is about raising up and training somebody up in your ways. Not in the ways of another, because you can't do that. Children will always become who you are and what, we, and what you are. And really the purpose of discipleship, especially with young children, is that discipleship is not so much to train behavior. Discipleship is about training the heart. It's about the values. It's about the who and not the what. Who do you want to be? What kind of person do you want to be? And molding and shaping the character and the nature of the child, not just the behavior of a child. And this doesn't happen through impersonal laws, but through a value system that is demonstrated in the context of intimate relationship. Proverbs 22, verse 6 says this. I'll read to you from the New Amplified Bible. It says, Train up a child in the way he should go, teaching him to seek God's wisdom and will for his abilities and talents. And even when he is old, he will not depart from it. I think your version is slightly different. It says, train up a child in the way he should go and in keeping with his individual gift or bent. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. You know, I was driving in my car one day and I don't know why the scripture came to mind, but as it did, it was like a light bulb went on in my mind. Because for, for years and years, I read the scripture, to, 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 and, and my thinking was, you, you, you raise up a child in the way he should go. In other words, you teach him good manners. You teach him right from wrong. You teach him what is good. You teach him what is bad. All of those things are good, by the way. Until I realized that a way was not a method, but a path. Raise up your children in the way he should go. So not just the manner, because we spend a lot of time thinking on or, or, or focusing on the manner of a child grows up, the, the habits and the behaviors that they have. It's not a bad thing. But what the Bible promises us is that when we raise up our children and we give them a path to follow, give them a vision and a purpose for their life, give them something or someone, Jesus Christ, to pursue, he says in the context of that, when they are older, they will not depart from it. Because that way will have so gripped their hearts, the revelation and the understanding of God and His goodness in Jesus Christ will become such a part of who they are that they won't rebel, they won't turn away from it. I know you probably know, as do I, many children or young adults, teenagers who come out of strong authoritarian disciplinarian homes, and what happens? They want to rebel. 
They want to do their own thing. They want to go their own way. They want to find themselves. Why? Because the focus all along has been on this is good, this is bad, do this, don't do this, this is right, this is wrong. Now I understand there is room and there is context for teaching that. But the most valuable gift we parents can give to our children is not just a knowledge of what is right or wrong, but it's, it's a value system and a faith that is alive and that will guide them and will shape and form the way that they make decisions in life. Giving them something to live for. Now this requires training and discipline. It requires a stable, loving environment. And most of all, it requires a good example to follow. And that's where we sometimes struggle, isn't it? Is to set that example. You see, as parents, we need to demonstrate something to our children. If you wake up on a Sunday morning and go, oh, church again. Do we have to go to church? You know, I, I like the story of a man who wakes up and his wife's waking him up, and she says, sweetheart, come on, get up, it's time to get up. And he goes, oh, what day is it? She says, it's Sunday. She says, oh, Sunday. Are you going to make me go to church today? And she said, yes, of course. Come on, get up, get dressed. I don't, why do I have to go to church? I don't want to go to church today. She says, come on. The Word of God's going to be preached. We need the Word of God. We have praise and worship. It's going to be great. He goes, oh, but every time I go to church, I just feel so judged by everyone. She goes, don't worry about everybody else, man. It's, it's a good place. You'll be encouraged. You, you know, God's love will say, man, why? But can't I just sleep in for one day? She says, no, you've got to go to church. She says, why? She says, because you're the pastor. <laughs> and sometimes the example we end up setting for others, it's lacking. What is, it, what is the example that we communicate in our home when it comes to the things of God? Do we in our hearts feel that the Word of God is some kind of law to restrict us? Or do we see it as clear boundaries set for us to, bless, to be blessed and to prosper it? Do we see the gathering of the saints and coming together for prayer and worship and the ministry of the Word as some kind of obligation that we need to fulfill? Or is there a joy in it? Is spending time with God on a regular basis a chore? You know, I preached quite recently and I said something, and as I said it, I was so touched inside. I said, surely I don't need to convince you that our God is worth pursuing. And I thought of how much time I've spent behind a pulpit and how many sermons I've heard of preachers trying to persuade the people of God that He is worth pursuing. Really, it shouldn't be so. You know, I often counsel people who are struggling with the situation they find themselves in. Their heart's not in it. It's a burden. It's tiresome. And this can be not just relating to church things. It could be relating to a job, to a, uh, a something they volunteered for, whatever it may be. And when your heart's not in something, there's three options that are available to you. Actually, only two that are viable. But there's three options. The first one is this. Keep on keeping on with the same attitude. You're going to continue being frustrated. There's going to be no life and joy in what you're doing. And the people you're doing it with and for are going to feel that and it's going to affect them and the atmosphere around you. That's not really a viable option. The second option is to stop. If there's something you're doing and it's a burden to you and there's no life in it, stopping is a viable option. Evaluate. Is, am I, is this still what I want to be doing? Am I still called to be here? Is this place still for me or should I be looking elsewhere? But the third option I found is, although the most difficult, generally the most rewarding, 
And that is the option of changing my attitude. I can change my attitude. My attitude towards church, my attitude towards my family, my attitude towards Uncle Neville who drives me nuts, whatever the case may be. I can change my heart attitude. And I want to say this to you, parents. Your kids can pick it up. Kids are not stupid. Kids are smart. And they pick up the truth really, really quickly. They know exactly what is going on around them. The other day, my eldest daughter, her name's Leah, she's six years old at the moment. I came home from work one day, came home, put down my bags, got changed and sat down on the couch. And my six-year-old confronted me. Dad, how come you come home and sit on the couch and mom has to do all the work? Now, I don't know who she's been talking to. I don't know if mom briefed her, but she just burst out laughing in the kitchen. My point is this. Kids know. Kids can pick up what is going on. And so our attitude, if we are going to set an example, our attitude towards the things of God makes a huge difference, not just to us personally, but to our children and their view and their perspective of who God is and what He is like. I've often heard it said, in fact, I've, I've, heard, I've seen it on you know, Facebook, you have these little memes that come up, and, and sometimes the one that comes up is, the greatest thing a father can do for his children is to love their mother. And I tried to find out who the author was, and the, who originally said that, and it turns out a whole bunch of people originally said that. So I don't know who to quote on that one. But I do want to change it a little bit because, yes, although I, I see the value in, in that statement, I want to say to you this morning that the greatest gift you can give to your children is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and to let them watch you do it. So that that life within you becomes infectious, it becomes contagious and your children will catch it. You see, your children will always catch what you carry. It will either draw them closer to God, or it will draw you away from God. Let me give you another example. Craig this morning led us in prayer. Craig is a Manchester United supporter. The reason he is a Manchester United supporter is most likely because his father, Nick, is a Manchester United supporter. He inherited that support from his father. And this just so beautifully demonstrates how a father can lead his son astray just <laughs> by the things he is passionate about. I am kidding, by the way. You see, you're, when you are passionate about something, you never need to convince those around you about your passion. You never need to convince those around you about why what you're doing is important. You believe it in the very core of who you are and you live it out and you work it out and they watch you do it and they derive joy and pleasure because you're being productive in something that you are passionate about. It not only ministers to your heart, but I want to tell you it ministers to your family, especially where that thing that you are pursuing is God because God is love. God is good. And when we pursue Him, we are changed. We cannot help, we cannot stay the same and pursue God. God has an incredible way of working with us. He is so gentle and so meek, but yet so powerful. God is the only one by the power of His Spirit who can truly change who we are. 
My father used to have this expression. He said to me that, you know, Michael, once you hit about 25, 26 years old, people don't really change much after that. They just become more like who they've already become. If you're stubborn and you have a bad attitude at 25, chances are you're going to be the same at 35 and 45, just more acutely. By the time you hit 65 and 75, God help your children. Now, yes, I believe Jesus can change our hearts, but there is truth in that statement. And this is why it's so important. When we talk about parenting, that we demonstrate something to them and then invite them along to partake and be a part of this wonderful journey that we are on. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 5 and 7 say this. I'm reading from the Message Translation. Love God, your God, with your whole heart. Love Him with all that's in you. Love Him with all you've got. I really love that. Write these commandments that I've given you today on your hearts. Get them inside of you, and then get them inside your children. Let's pause for a moment. What are the commands that Jesus has given us? It's just two of them. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and your strength. The second is likewise. Love your neighbor as I have loved you. Very simple. If those are the laws that are written on your heart, if that is the mantra you live by, guess what? Your kids are going to inherit something truly beautiful and really wonderful. It will never be a problem for them to emulate you. In fact, their emulation and their, their, their uh, modeling themselves after you becomes a point that you're actually really proud of, rather than something you're ashamed of. It goes on to say, talk about these things wherever you go, wherever you are, sitting at home or walking in the street, talk about them from, time, from the time you get up in the morning to when you go to bed at night. You see, folks, children will always pick up what you are enthusiastic about. It's just that simple. And if you are not enthusiastic about God and about the things of God, your children aren't going to grow up being enthusiastic. If you do not show your children what commitment looks like to the things of God, to church, to being consistent, to being involved, to true fellowship with other believers, they're going to want to grow up in an isolated, insular life. So there's so much responsibility that we have as parents to take the Word of God Make it a part of our everyday life so that we can demonstrate the life of that to them. Here's another example from Scripture. Judges chapter 2. And the context of this is really interesting. You're all familiar with the story of Moses and the Exodus. God meets Moses in a burning bush, tells him he's going to lead the people out of Israel. He confronts Pharaoh. He doesn't believe him. A whole lot of plagues happen. Eventually, they come out of, the, come out of Egypt, go through the Red Sea, spend 40 years in the wilderness. Eventually, after that, Joshua leads the people over the Jordan into the promised land. And just there's a, there's a progression of miracle after miracle after miracle. They walk around a little city for a while, shout at it, and the walls come tumbling down. Really strange, miraculous things happening. But this verse brings us to the end of that generation, where something truly tragic happens. So we pick up the story, Judges 2, verse 10. It says, When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, in other words, had died, another gen generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which He had done for Israel. They didn't know God. Can it be that all these miraculous things happened and the next generation didn't even know about the deliverance? Didn't even know about the Red Sea parting and people walking through on dry land? 
didn't know about the walls of Jericho that fell and all these other wonderful miracles that took place. Nobody told them. Nobody had shared the truth with them. This God, wonderful, almighty God who they worshipped. And what was the result? The next verse tells us. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord God of their fathers who brought them out of the land of Egypt and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. Folks, I want to say this to you this morning. There will always be other gods. The most valuable gift that you can give to your children is your faith. There will always be other gods. There will always be other ways. But the most valuable gift you can give your children is your faith. This is something that should never, ever be left to chance. I do not understand how a believer, someone who professes Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, can say, no, I don't want to teach, I don't want to take my children to church. I don't want to force God on them. I want them to grow up and make up their own mind. If you believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, if you believe that He is the only way to the Father, how can you possibly make a statement like that? That is gross negligence in terms of spiritual parenting. The most wonderful... And, and, and what does it also say about what you think of your God? No. That is certainly not the stance any believer can ever take to say, oh, I'll leave that up to chance. I would seriously question the genuineness of anybody's faith in God who said that. What is it that you truly then believe? What is it that you are living your life for? No, no, no. This faith that I have, this Jesus that I worship, He is the focus, the all in all of my life. And I will raise my children to see Him the same way because through Him they will have life and blessing and grace and peace and a living hope in the midst of all these pressures and all these other gods. 2 Timothy Paul writes, and he says in verse, chapter 3 and verse 14, but you must continue, he's writing to Timothy, he says, continue the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that is a vital and a key thing. We live in a Google age. Do you know how often I have to, people come to me, they want counseling, they want to hear what the Word of God is concerning a certain matter, and as soon as I begin opening up the Word of God to them, they say, yes, but you know what? I googled, and this guy says that, and that guy says this. And listen, we live in a Google age, and there's 101 million opinions out there. Some are good, some are not so much. The question is, who has God given you to lead and instruct you? You see, I have a neighbor that lives right across the road or next door from me, and they're also raising kids. And they're raising good kids, but their methods are different to mine. And their heart and their passion is different to mine. And what they're living and giving their lives for is different to mine. Is it bad and mine good? No, it is different. But I believe in my way. And therefore I need to embrace that and walk in that and raise my children. And he says to, him, says to Timothy, know who you learned these things from. Why? Because those people actually know who you are and they love you. They are worthy of your trust. Someone so-and-so on Google doesn't know who I am. He doesn't know my context. He doesn't know anything about it. Who should I be following? Whose advice should I be taking? Those dear loved ones in my life. Amen? But then Paul goes on to say that from childhood, 
You have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Jesus Christ. So we see the principle again coming through. From childhood you have been taught. From childhood you have been trained. And this is the primary responsibility of the parent. Yes, there are going to be other forces of influence out there. Your kids are going to go to school and there's going to be other kinds of influences and voices that talk to them. I want to say to you parents, it's not your job to ensure your your child's social popularity. It's not your job to protect their fragile ego. It is your job to give them a sense of identity and purpose in life that are resilient enough to deal with the inevitable social pressures that they will face and overcome them. That is our role. Our role is not to silence every other voice that is out there. Our role is to give them a voice within that is so powerful that it overpowers every other voice that is out there. Amen. That they don't need to go out and find themselves or struggle for identity. They are so whole and so secure in who God has called and created them to be. You see, when it comes to the ways of God, folks, the wisdom of God, we often want the wisdom of God to be instructional. There's theory to it, but most of the time, the wisdom and the love and the will of God are relational. We learn them through relationship, and it's the same with our children. Wisdom deals with the why far more than it deals with the what. And if we want to raise our children in the wisdom of God, we'll give them a why. Not just a what to do. There's an old expression that says, Methods are many, values are few. Methods change often. Values seldom do. And there's a lot of truth in that. Methods will change all the time. You know, I spoke to Pastor Andreas this week. We were having a conversation concerning this morning. And he said to me, you know, Michael, I don't know how, how parents do it today. I don't know if, how I would parent in this day and age. If I had children now, I don't know how I would parent them. Things are just so different from when I raised my children. I said, Dad, based on your testimony, when you raised your children, you didn't know what you were doing then either. By his own confession. But here's the one key that that I've learned from my father-in-law, who didn't have a godly example of what parenting is like. He didn't have parents who were present. He was shipped off to go and work at a young age. What he did when he had his first child is he went to the library and he bought every book he could on parenting. And he learned the hows. He learned how to raise children, how to discipline I want to say to you folks, today there's a lot of hows around, and there's a lot of really good stuff on how to parent. I want to encourage you, educate yourself. You'll see this morning, I'm very deliberately not giving you the ABCs, the one, two, threes, or the formulas for parenting. That's, That's not what this morning is all about. I want you to catch the heart of something from which those one, two, threes and the methods will flow. An attitude and a hot attitude from which those things will flow. I mean, we've we got James Dobson and Rob Parsons focus on the family. Locally, we've got Hetty Brits and, and, and uh, Evergreen Parenting Courses. These are all really, really good things. And if you're a parent, I encourage you, enroll yourself, educate yourself, learn how to understand and to read your child, learn the best ways to parent your child because not every child is the same. But you notice that this morning, I'm deliberately not focusing on the how, as I've said, and I am defocusing on the who. Who is it that your children will emulate? It is you as their parents. 
And that leaves me with a question. Parents, who is it that you are emulating? This is the essence of godly parenting. Everything else flows from that. That we can emulate somebody. That we can look to Jesus. And then in our everyday life, we can be Jesus to our family. I can be the love of Jesus to my wife. And I can be the loving, compassionate Jesus to my children. And I can emulate and demonstrate something to them through whatever means or whatever method may be necessary or required at the time. But when that heart is in place, when I am passionately pursuing Jesus, I am giving my children every opportunity to gain a window into a world that is far above and far better than everything else they are going to see around them. Not only that, I give them free access into it to enjoy the goodness of the kingdom of God in our home because that is the atmosphere that we create when we pursue Jesus. That's why he told us, pray this way, that your kingdom come, that your will be done here on earth, in my home, in my family, in my environment, as your will is done in heaven. Because where that exists, the very atmosphere of heaven exists. And parents, that is our role. As believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, that is our responsibility, and that is our incredible privilege to love Him wholeheartedly, to serve Him enthusiastically, and to share, worship, share and worship Him extravagantly. And today, we have parents who are going to be dedicating themselves to this very task. And so we come to the point in our service where we are going to be dedicating. Now, it's interesting. We talk about baby dedication. And there is a part of dedication that falls on the child this morning where the child will be dedicated to the Lord and, and to the Lordship of the Holy Spirit in its life. But in reality, there is a couple here this morning that are dedicating themselves to raise their children in the faith to which they have devoted their lives. And that is an incredible dedication. We hope that you've enjoyed this message. For additional resources and more information, come and visit us at alphaomega.org.za.